This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. Publishers, who are they and what do they do? We'll go behind the scenes with one of the people who makes publishing run, Annie Koyama from Koyama Press. Hi, Annie. Can you introduce yourself and talk a little about yourself and what you do and how you got into publishing? Sure. Hi, I'm Annie Koyama from Koyama Press in Toronto, Ontario. I run a small press that publishes mostly alternative comics, some zines. I'm branching out into uh, art projects and that kind of thing. I have done art books, uh, but maybe we can talk about a little bit why I'm winding down on that too. Um, I have no publishing background whatsoever. I'm a film producer by trade, but uh, I got sick for a long time and then was actually sent home with a terminal diagnosis about uh, 13 years ago. Before that, I had been working in advertising and film. And while I didn't like the advertising part, it was a very lucrative job for 10 years. And so I made you know a good amount of money doing that in the 80s when everybody else was making a lot of money. But I decided to get out. I just wanted to get out of advertising and travel. So I saved up and then I became ill and was not able to use those funds. So uh, after I did not die, after a risky brain surgery, I decided I didn't want to go back to those horribly long days in film. Uh, I certainly didn't want to go back to advertising that much I knew. I wasn't really able to travel now because of health stuff. So uh, what else could I do? Around that time in Canada, I had read that the grants to artists were sort of drying up. You know, they're getting cut back every year. And I had this pile of money to use. I don't have much debt. I don't have kids. And so I thought I'd reach out to some, at first, illustrators, you know, Toronto local artists, and do projects with them whereby I would fund whatever the project was. Ideally, it would have some, you know, tangible item that they could sell, whether it be a zine, a book, uh, you know, a T-shirt project, uh, letterpress prints, that kind of thing. And then I would give them, they could keep all the proceeds from the sale of those items and then hopefully have a little bit of money to go on and do their next project, which normally they wouldn't have. And so that was fun. Yeah, I happened upon three Toronto illustrators who uh, had a collective called Trio Magnus. uh, And we would sit and doodle together at something called Pen Club. I looked in their sketchbooks and they did a fantastic job. Um... And we all sort of joked that, you know, hey, we should make a book. And uh, though none of us actually knew how to make a book, we did figure it out. And then I think around that time, I decided to send them to Japan because one of them had been there before, maybe two of them. But they told me about this show that was happening there, Design Festa. So uh, we did the book. I printed it. I sold my car in order to send them off to Japan and... Uh, that was the beginning of accidentally falling into publishing with no publishing background whatsoever. So can you talk a little about how you went from uh, that idea of supporting artists to making comics and graphic novels specifically? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. At first, uh, I decided I wanted to do art books. Um, I like a lot of fine art stuff. And I also noticed that galleries were not making Uh, catalogs anymore for the artist shows. I figured out 
you know, it was also because of, of money, lack of money, lack of funds. And so I thought, gee, you know, maybe I'll do art books. I love art books, you know, um, I always have. And so right when I decided that the two stores in town that sold art books, primarily in Toronto, Toronto's a pretty big city, uh, they both closed. And so I realized, uh-oh, there's, you know, where am I going to sell these? It, this was way before I even knew about how to get a distributor for your books. So basically I was schlepping around what books I had and selling them on consignment and at, at the odd show. So then around that time, I don't sleep a lot. So I was, you know, surfing artists' websites late at night when, you know, they had websites. Um, and this is before Twitter and Tumblr, not Twitter maybe, but Tumblr. And I found Michael DeForge's gig posters. Uh, he's a local artist who at that time was, you know, insanely young, like 20 years old or something. Um, and I tracked him down at TCAF, which was one of the first shows that I ever tabled at with books. Uh, he just happened to walk by my table and because of Facebook, I knew what he looked like. Um, and so uh, shortly after that show, we got together and at that time he was making, uh, working on Luz, his comic series that turned into something that we published together and uh, we agreed to work together and to this day we're still working together you know I love him he's become a dear friend um, I knew he was insanely talented you know at a young age even then uh, but you know he's just surpassed that every year he does something more and more so uh, that was the beginning of me getting into comics uh, while I read them growing up you know Pogo was read to me I read Little Lulu and Nancy, you know, that kind of thing, Archie, superhero stuff. I hadn't read comics for many, many years in between. Michael helped by showing me the work of, you know, a lot of the people that you ought to know about if you decide you're going to be working in publishing and doing alternative comics. Uh, my history was this huge black hole missing. Uh, so he filled a lot of those holes by showing me stuff. He also introduced me to other local artists like Patrick Kyle and Jeanette LaPalme and uh, Chris Kuzma, who had another collective called Wowie Zonk. I ended up publishing the Wowie Zonks a few times as a group, and I've worked several times with Patrick. I've done a book with Jeanette, and I am doing a book with Kuzma coming up in 2019. So uh, he introduced me to people in the community who I would not have published if I didn't meet them through Michael. So I owe him quite a debt. So it sounds like for you, publishing is a lot about these personal and individual connections. It is very much so. And I've always said that I go for the art first. And while that is very much true, if I don't like the art, no matter how strong the story is, uh, I don't think I would take it on. But uh, I was recently on a panel at uh, SPX, and Dustin Harbin was on the panel, and he, uh, when I said that, he, he gently took issue, and he said, you know, I think that's probably true, but really what Annie does is she picks people, and she works with people, and she publishes people, but she also uh, supports people beyond the publishing of their book. And I've thought about that ever since, because he was totally right. You know, I used to joke in the early days, part of my mandate was don't work with dicks. Ryan Sands, who runs the Frontier series and Youth in Decline, is a wonderful small press publisher and a friend. And he has said that I said to him early on, don't work with assholes. Uh, I say that 
you know, non-jokingly because uh, I do have another brain aneurysm that's not operable. So I may not have as much time as all of you, but you know, who knows? Nobody knows. So especially that holds meaning to me because if I don't have as much time as, you know, a normal person would in terms of lifespan, I really don't want to spend it working with jerks. As much as you can vet that going in, I mean, there are people I'm working with, a person right now who I've never met. I know him over emails and I have phoned him a few times, but uh, I won't actually meet him until his book comes out next fall. And so, you know, that's still a bit of a chance uh, that you're taking. Um, You know, this person is quite wonderful and I'm sure he's not a dick, but (laughs) sometimes my point is you can't really vet people as much as you'd like to. When you're deciding on artists that you'd like to work with, are there particular qualities that you're looking for? Like you talked about their art, but are there, um, is there a particular voice or a particular kind of personality or energy that it is that like, how do you decide there's obviously more amazing artists in the world than you could ever publish personally. Mm-hmm. So like, what is, what is it that kind of makes you feel like this is a person that I want to work with? This is a Koyama author. Yes. It's pretty easy to me. My mandate has been largely from day one that I want to work primarily with emerging artists. Uh, When you do that, I guess I didn't realize what I was getting into because it's, you know, 10 times harder to break out a new artist who no one's ever heard of, who no one has seen their work. Um, They may have, you know, a batch of Twitter followers or whatever, but it doesn't mean that'll translate necessarily into book sales. You can't get press nearly as easily if no one's heard of someone, if they don't have another book under their belt. It's way harder to bring them to the attention of the people who will write about them and their work. Uh, Despite all of that difficulty, I still prefer to do a lot of that, I should say, because now I get to work with Eleanor Davis, who is anything but emerging and is, you know, a total delight. So uh, things have evolved over the years. But Breaking out a new artist and giving them a a step up where most people can't afford to take that risk, um, it's a huge risk to, even if you don't make um, a lot of books. Sorry, are we stopping? One second, just one second. Sure. Yes. I think we are, sorry, the doorbell just rang. So I think we're just going to pause for a second to figure out what's going on. And then we will uh, continue on talking about how it is best to work with people who are not dicks. And I'm very sorry about that. I had a delivery that arrived at the worst possible time. Oh, that was it pizza or something good mm. though. Groceries. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. My apologies. Okay. So Annie, you were saying that the mission of Koyama is to support young emerging authors, which means that you get to work with some amazing people like Eleanor Davis, who aren't emerging authors as well. But you like really feel like that core principle of the company is to support people who are beginning their careers. It is to this day. And I hope, you know, until I stop that that will always be a very important part of the company. What I didn't bank on was any success because I, you know, I just sort of went book to book. To be honest, it was several years in before I actually considered myself a real publisher. I knew that I was doing the work, but, uh, you know, not having that background, having these huge gaping holes of, you know, comic history and not having the time to catch up, um, 
especially I'm an A-type person, and so catching up is not just reading a few issues of Raw and, you know, reading one Chris Ware. It's reading every single thing from day one, and so you can imagine how impossible that task is for anybody, no matter how eager, if they didn't have a job, you know, if they had unlimited funds and time and the best library in the world, it would be daunting for anyone to do. So I have to fight against those instincts to move ahead. But I guess when I started having success in breaking out people like Michael and Jesse Jacobs and Patrick, uh, Kyle, um, you want to keep working with those people and boosting them up again to the next step and keeping them on people's radar. Uh, also the curiosity of seeing what they will do next and how uh, I've learned that artists grow at very different rates. There's no right answer to, you know, people often bemoan, oh my God, DeForge is so prolific. And he is prolific, but it doesn't mean that someone who takes, you know, a Steve Wolfhard who has many other things on the go, who might have one book every four years or five years, uh, there's no less value to that work. But I, I feel like, unfortunately, for a lot of uh, young cartoonists, they feel like it's a race. Um, I get that if your friends and colleagues are being picked up and getting book deals here and there and you're not, I understand why you know that's hard. But really, to watch people grow at different rates is pretty fascinating. So something you just said was interesting to me. Um, you said it kind of took you a while before you necessarily felt like you were a publisher. Was that just kind of a gradual process or was there like a moment or, or a book where you're like, okay, now I am definitely a publisher? <laughs> I guess because I, I had to learn everything from day one. I never had any ambition to work in the book world. I actually did always want to work in a bookstore. And while I ended up in a retail job at some point when I was young, uh, I never actually fulfilled that thing. But um, I just didn't it was never on my radar. So, you know, you can be an avid reader and whatever and think you know about books and certainly like certain paper and pay attention and read a lot about how books are made. But I didn't have any background whatsoever. So every single thing I learned, I learned by trial and error. Um, you know, I'm bullheaded when I read Julia Wirtz saying in her books that, you know, she doesn't like to be told what to do. Um, you know, that, that's funny, but it's not so funny when, I'm also like that, but <laughs> it's less funny when you have a lot of people relying on you and you can't be as wild and uh, you can't take as many risks when you have, you know, overhead and you have staff that you have to take care of and, uh, you know, you have bigger responsibilities. So um, I just bullheadedly go. I don't mind a big learning curve because I like to work. I like to work hard and I like to work really a lot. Um, and I like a challenge. So that stuff didn't scare me away. I guess the other thing is when you are told to go home and settle your affairs, you're going to die within two months, and then you don't die, you sort of have balls of steel for the first several years and think that you can do anything because it feels like you can do anything. Now, if I had not had the nest egg that I'd saved up, and I also, when I was sick, I played the stock market to grow that travel fund, yeah, I, I would you know, be perhaps a little more risk averse, but it's not in my nature not to, you know, jump off cliffs that way. So all of those things conspired to make me go for it. Uh, people sometimes ask me if you knew now what you, you know, know, would you go back and do it again? And 
the answer is yes, absolutely. I'd had, again, you know, stupidly or whatever into it at a time when people were beginning to say that print was dying. Uh, that would still not stop me. Of course, I would do a lot of things differently. So you've been talking about a few different things that you seem like they're essential for you as being a publisher, like jumping off cliffs, like, you know, investing in new people in their careers. Are there, there are other uh character traits or ideals or goals that you think are necessary for publishers to have when they're looking at publishing? I think that, yes, sensible, smart ones are, you know, responsible and they're good with budgets. They know how to organize people. They know how to problem solve. They know how to stay calm in the face of sometimes horrendous problems on, you know, short deadlines and books not arriving, uh, printers screwing up. Uh, this stuff is always going to happen to you, you know, even to the, the best printer, uh, you can do your best job you can and shit is going to happen. Uh, you have to just keep forging ahead. You know, you've got an artist that you can't disappoint. If you take them on, you know, you have to be a hundred percent about it. So the juggling of that is it's stressful. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't walk through that stuff without sweating a lot. Um, you're just better prepared I think to deal with that kind of thing if you have had jobs where like I did you had to manage you know hundreds of thousands of dollar budgets uh, you had to move around you know a uh, hundred people on a day and uh, get all those shots in by the end of the day and uh, you know wrap your set properly with no injuries getting everything in the can for the client uh, making the agency happy all of the stuff that I did in film, I can translate into being a good publisher because I maintain that those organizing skills will do you well in any job you have. So you're working with Consortium now as a distributor, am mm -hmm. I remembering correctly? Correct. Uh, now, how did that change your business for you? Because before you were, like you said, you were doing books, basically going from store to store on consignment, and then now you have a large national distributor, like has that changed uh, how you're running your business or kind of how your day looks? Yes, it's completely changed it. Uh, so much so that uh, while I had Ed Canerva, who is wonderful working part-time with me prior to that, uh, there's so much work that you have to do with the distributor uh, in putting all kinds of things, writing all kinds of things, that I needed extra help. So that was the beginning of bringing Ed on full-time. You have to have a certain kind of books you have to have a certain number of titles your sales have to be okay enough that they're going to want to take you on um, you have to be good at selling your own books to them all of those things I was doing but not in a formal and, and certainly not in a traditional way so I had to get rid of the uh, pamphlet comics that I love, that I grew up with, that are really my first love, and I, I would go back to them in a second if I didn't have to worry about uh, distributors not taking those on, uh, if I didn't have to worry about being disqualified for grants that I can get in Canada, but not if I do that kind of book. Uh, they have to be 48 pages, that kind of thing. So there were constraints put on me, and uh, you know, I'll go back and say I don't like people telling me what to do uh, when I am, you know, the boss of my own little tiny little kingdom I had that was hard for me it was hard to be constrained that way the other thing I guess I don't like about it that is difficult but I mean a lot of it is 
been put on to Ed because he's a better writer than I is that you have to, you know, you have to do the sales part, which doesn't come naturally to me. I, I guess I have blind faith that the stuff that I choose, I can make enough people interested in uh, by seeing the book, but I, I'm also not naive. I know that in order to get it out to stores, I have to convince several people along a chain of command to get it to that store and to sell that store owner on possibly taking a chance on it. So, yes, it's changed things really a lot. Do you feel like there are people who are reading your books now who wouldn't have had access to them before you were working with Consortium? A hundred percent. I can't get my books by myself. I was able to get them into uh, Indigo, which is our large chain in Canada. It's our Barnes and Noble, basically. Uh, but I don't think I'd been able to get by myself our books into uh, Barnes and Noble, for instance, and a lot of bookstores that are not necessarily comic stores. Uh, some of them have small graphic novel sections. Um, so yeah, you can't do that on your own unless you want to, you know, have two copies here and there by consignment. So, yeah, it, it's that's why I went with them. I didn't do very well with Diamond on my own. Uh, they wouldn't take a lot of our books, and, you know, that sort of made me irate because I saw a lot of crappy stuff that they did take, and uh, I saw no reason why, you know, why would you not take Michael DeForge? I mean, this is when his star was on the rise. It wasn't just the first day I put that book out the first of his books and no one knew who he was. So I had issues with them and, you know, we've done better with them through the distributor. Uh, it's still far from perfect and I have lots of issues with them, but bringing on that, you know, heavy hitter does stuff that I can't do by myself. I do want you to know that when you said diamond, Gina and I made a face at each other across the table. <laughs> was it like a, a poopy face? Just like a diamond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like everyone makes that face. Yeah, and, no, I, I think yeah. it's like it's like a reflex at this point. Anyway, yeah, don't even get me started on Amazon. But yes, yeah. uh, so but yeah, the, the answer is yes. I, I, the reason I went with them is because they could take uh, get a way further reach, taking it uh, to librarians where I couldn't. Um, you know, getting it into schools where I couldn't. But I will say that if you have good retailers behind you, and I have a really great local retailer, the Beguiling behind me um they're only one of you know the good canadian ones there's some very supportive wonderful ones uh but they in particular behind the scenes they sell to libraries and that kind of thing too uh to schools and so in addition to having consortium which was bought by ingram um i have you know another outlet that's you know knocking down those doors for me any help that you can get uh, I think you don't stop at the big distributor. I have John Porcelino uh, getting stuff up to zine fairs, and uh, he actually sells to retailers that may not buy from Ingram through his spit-and-a-half distro. So that's very helpful. Um, I don't sell direct, unlike uh, most other publishers. I just don't have the labor nor the time. And to be honest, I don't have the time to be chasing people who don't pay me for months I don't need that added on to my list, and I certainly don't miss that from the early days when I did sell directly. But um, again, Koyama Press is atypical in that way. So what does your staff look like at this point? You mentioned one person who's working with you. Like, where? What's your office look like? How many people work with you? Do they work in the office full-time? Kind of how is that set up for you? 
we're in an arts hub called 401 Richmond in Toronto, which has been under attack because uh, we're downtown amongst all the condo development. And so the city recently levied a huge tax on that building. The building is run by a woman who is a philanthropist, but a huge art supporter. And she's had that building since the 90s, early 90s, I believe. The building takes up a full city block. It's a heritage building, and it's got four floors of all artists, arts-related, uh, nonprofits, some charities, some you know for-profit people, and then some uh, supplier types, galleries. It's a wonderful, wonderful, important place, and I'm very lucky to have only sat on the waiting list to get in there for a year. We have about 680 square feet. It's an open concept office with three huge windows. You know, it's an old building, so they just turned the boiler on this week, and there's so much clanking in the old radiators that uh, we have to yell to <laughs> be heard. So it's a bit quaint that way. We're not allowed to put a lot of things on the walls or in the beams because they're so old. But um, Ed Canerva works full-time. Uh, Ed lives about an hour out of town, and so I, did, I don't make him come in very often. He might work in the office two days a week, and then he works from home because he doesn't need to actually come in to do design work and that kind of thing. He can do marketing from anywhere. Uh, my sister, Helen Koyama, joined us a few years ago, and she works maybe one to two days a week. Uh, she primarily does a lot of the financial stuff, but... You know, she pitches in and she's a great copy editor. Uh, she has, you know, table that shows. She does a lot for us. And then I had Daniel Nishio. I brought him in as an intern and he was so good. And he's a great a copy editor. His background is writing. But I grabbed him right out of university and he's with us four days a week now. So it's there are days when it's Ed and I in there, all four of us in there, Daniel and I in there, Daniel, Helen and myself. It's different every single day, sometimes just me. And what do you do on those days, days when you're in the office, days when you're not in the office? Like what, what is the work of being a publisher? Um, I can't speak to anybody else because I probably do it a little bit differently. But uh, uh, today, for instance, I took a meeting for a couple hours with an artist from uh, Vancouver Island and then came in and wrote out royalty checks that uh, Helen and Daniel have been working their butts off for a few weeks uh, doing the calculations. Our bookkeeper came in who comes in, you know, maybe quarterly. Uh, we had a session with her. Ed worked from home. You know, the odd person drops in. Uh, we sent out books to be considered for certain awards today. You know, random review copies go out. A million emails. I'm working on an interview for someone. You know, in the few minutes, I can get a minute to myself. You know, we take turns going out for lunch. It's a pretty democratic office. Um, there's not, you know, we deal with stuff as it comes in. That's one day. And the, the larger picture of being a publisher, it's like more, more than emails. Absolutely. There's um, the work with the artist. Emailing is so much of it because you're either working on contracts, you're writing, you're reading, you're looking at proofs. Uh, we're waiting on hard proofs. You know, we're trying to organize Ed to get down to the cab show in Brooklyn. And he leaves on Friday, so we're running around getting show stuff ready. Uh, we're also prepping Helen and Ed to go to Japan next Thursday for two shows. And so uh, trying to get all the royalties paid out before that, uh, sending out contracts today, reading new, you know, I, I'm not taking submissions because I'm overbooked for 2019 and I can't handle any more. 
uh, even with what I have, I'm not even sure how I'm going to do 2019 at this point, but uh, I'm always reading stuff when I can. I'm often out taking meetings when the other two or three are in the office. You know, there's a tenants meeting. Every day is different. You name it. I'm sure I'm missing all kinds. Oh, foreign rights. Uh, you know, who owes us money chasing retailers, you know, sending off foreign rights contracts, sending books to the people in Europe or Asia or whatever who are uh, considering publishing our books in different languages, getting stuff to the artists, making sure people have places to stay at a show next week, checking in on grant writing. <laughs> it's it's endless and every day is different. So you said that you are booked up for 2019 right now. Can you tell us about how many books you're publishing a year? And are there any, you know, categories your books break down into like kids or art comics or genre categories or anything like that? Sure. I'm probably doing about 13 books a year now. Uh, For a long time, it was eight to 10 books. But a few years ago, I took on uh, the odd kids book. And so we can have one kids book a year, or we might have four uh, out of those 13 slots. I have certain people whose autobio work I love. And so I continue working with Kyla Roberts, you know, Julia Wirtz when she's ready. I basically have to have stopped doing the art books because it's held me back, to be honest. Uh, there's not a big market for it. And doing them in smaller runs just does not pay off because they're virtually all colored books. They're very expensive to produce. And if you can't sell a lot of them and there aren't places to sell a lot of them. And um, honestly, a lot of people will pick up the art books at a show and say, oh, was this on Tumblr? Oh, yeah, I've seen it all. And then not buy the book. So it's wonderful. They've, they know that author. They've seen the work before. But I'm there, you know, at the end of the day to sell that book. And if I can't sell that book, eventually I've got to, you know, put my love of certain things aside for commerce, uh, or we're not going to be around in a few years. So that part is a no brainer. But you know, certainly art comic stuff. I mean, this year I did Antigone by uh, Connor Willemson, and it's certainly an art comic. It's, uh, you know, it's a head scratcher for some people, based on (laughs) some of the reviews I've seen. And yet, you know, some people are already saying book of the year. I, I think he's brilliant. I think you should watch him because he's going to be huge. I honestly find it hard to describe some of the stuff I'm doing for the next couple of years, but you'll see. I mean, I'm no, not averse to weird stuff, and there's some weird stuff coming. Oh, so exciting. You mentioned that you're doing 12 or 13 books a year. What determines that? Is it money? Is it how many hours you have in the day? Like, what's the limit that you're running up against when you're deciding how many books you can do? It's very, very much how much time I'm able to spend on each book uh, without feeling that I'm cheating each artist. I want to have a lot of input and I want to be able to sell them as equally as I can. Uh, Obviously, when you go to a show or whatever, uh, when you stop working with all emerging artists and you bring in an Eleanor Davis or, you know, have a Julia Wirtz or a Renee French, the balance changes. I can't help that. They already have a huge readership. You're going to sell more of those books. They have way more fans already just by virtue of them coming to you with that background. So I can't make it as fair as it used to be. But I don't ever want to look back and say, ah, oof, you know, I did 15 books that year and I love every book to death. But I feel like, gee, I know maybe we could have done more for Patrick's book or, you know, Sue Kim's book. I don't ever want to have that regret. And so I think I sort of top out around 13, 14, you know, I probably could do two more and um, 
devote enough time where I feel okay about it. But on the other hand, I'm trying to combat my natural workaholic tendencies. Uh, you know, I'm not 20 and I'm getting tired. I can't work seven days a week anymore. I don't want to work work seven days a week anymore. I have a partner. I'm still, you know, trying to get back into being a good girlfriend because I've been a shitty girlfriend for many, many years, you know, never being able to go on vacation with them and uh, working all weekend, uh, sending them off, you know, by themselves, you know, way too many times. So fortunately, my partner has a huge job too and is often out a lot and understands personally that I need a certain amount of space you know, just as a person, because I'm like that, if you're going to live with me. So I have that stuff going for myself, but I have been pushing that a little bit too far over the last few years. So if I want to keep working 24-7 for seven days a week, yeah, I can take 15 books on or more and, you know, sleep at night a little bit, uh, but I don't want to anymore. So I, I'm not going to cut back the books that I'm doing. You know, you know, if I were smart, I'd cut back to 10 books. But, you know, clearly um, <laughs> my passion outweighs my intelligence sometimes. Yeah, I mean, and I think that should be something that hopefully is like thought provoking and inspiring for anyone who's looking to get into publishing in any way, whether they're a creator or a publisher, or if they want to be a designer or a copy editor, you know, you have to have some time to live your life. Mm-hmm. And if you and you have to build your job so that you have some time to have your life and to be a good girlfriend and to go on vacation sometime. There's one other thing that I uh, I don't believe in not paying people for their work. And so I won't use unpaid interns. I know that I could get more done and schlep a lot of the um, lower level mundane stuff off to unpaid interns. And I, I won't, I choose not to do it. So uh, that's a personal choice. I'm not certainly not dissing anyone who does that. Um, you know, it's hard what we do. There's not much money in what we do. Uh, I certainly don't, you know, look down on people who do that. But I don't think I'd be able to sleep. I, it's just not in my nature um, that if I couldn't pay people properly. So you have been mentioning a little the idea of art and the idea of commerce. Can you talk a little about how you manage the balance of publishing these great books, some of them very art comics, some of them a little weird and wild and awesome. And some of them by people with larger audiences, like how do you how do you make that art and commerce kind of come together? To be honest, you juggle really a lot, because I want to still break out uh, books that I know may not sell very much, but they're not costing any less than, you know, a fancy book that I know will sell well or a book by an Eleanor Davis, which I don't have to worry about as much for sales, although I do have to promote it totally, incredibly, you know, as completely as I would anything else. It's always juggling. I just can't juggle quite as much as I used to in the early days. For at least the first half of the 10 years of uh, Koyama Press, uh, I was just running on all my own funds so I could do whatever the hell I wanted to. And I did. Uh, I don't care if, you know, in those days I'd sell 200 copies of something. It was more important for me to get that artist's name out there and so you'd know them for, and hopefully maybe someone else would take a chance on them. Maybe a gallery would pick them up. You know, it might not be a next book. Uh, it might be a next step and, you know, they could get an animation job. I mean, I look at the bigger community as my goal for fitting in. I'm not just there to publish books. And I know it's a huge thing to strive to do on top of your publishing job. But I don't think that 
more and more, the longer I do that, the more need I see to support artists more than just, you know, basically printing their book, getting it out there, getting them to shows. It's hard to be an artist. It's really, if you're in a city like I live in and where you guys are located, it's horrendous, the rents. So many people can't afford a studio space now. It's just out of their reach. And I don't want to see any of them quit because they're being priced out of a market. Uh, and so I can't just stop at a book uh, for them. So if, you know, as much as I can, and sometimes it comes out of my own personal pocket, I will send them to residencies. I'll give them help to get to a show that I'm not tabling at overseas, that kind of thing. Uh, they wouldn't be able to do it on their own uh, without, you know, really being poor when they got back. But why should they not have those opportunities? I, I feel you have to, like Dustin Harbin said, uh, what I referred to early on, if you don't support the person, it's nice to, you know, support one facet of their practice, but some of them are not going to be around and they're going to give up. And I would certainly blame no one for giving up, especially if you only did comics for very little money. The math makes no sense whatsoever on paper. It's a shitty deal. The market is not growing as much as I'd like it to grow, and I don't really know the solution to that. And clearly, other people who are better at their jobs and have done this way longer than I also don't know the answer. So, you know, I don't feel badly, but it, what it does make me do is if I can't do much about that or I can't figure out how to fix that, what can I do beyond making a book for someone and getting it out there properly for them? I can support their whole practice. Here's another thing that I've been doing quietly for a long, long time, but I'm going to do be more vocal about it because it's just the economy. And I think it really started with uh, Trump getting in. I don't want to turn this into a political rant here, but it made me think very deeply about how artists are going to survive in this new world that we're all dealing with. And I think that if more people than myself choose to embrace ways to support artists beyond the books that we make for them. Maybe I'm being naive, but it's my hope that it'll be more sustainable to be an artist. I won't have a look on my face when somebody who's in second year at an arts college asks me very seriously, like, oh, what is it out? What is it going to be like when I get out? You know, I do go and talk at schools and tell them the hard facts. I don't want anyone to quit, but I also don't want them getting out and thinking that the minute they get out that, you know, you guys are going to give them a book deal. It doesn't happen for everyone, as you know. Yeah, and most book deals are not, like, most people aren't getting, like, a $100,000 book deal. Pay back your art school debt. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, you know, I have lots of questions myself. <laughs> But my, the whole point of that is I, I try more and more to support the whole community. I can't publish all the people I want to. I just don't have the room. Uh, I may not have the resources to do all the books. Um, I don't. I like the size that my company is. I love the crew that I have. Um, I have said publicly that I can't do it without them anymore, which is true. But just as important, I don't want to do it without them anymore. I like who we have. We all fit in well. We all have a good shorthand. Uh, you know, we have lots of laughs. Uh, we don't take life too seriously, but we take our jobs very, very seriously. In order to do more, I'd have to hire more people. While I could probably figure that out, I think I'm choosing not to. Do you feel like because you're a smaller publisher with, with a smaller staff that you're able to think more holistically than 
because you you don't you don't have like a larger company you're operating within. You can just be making these decisions about how you want to deal with your authors or deal with your books. Like, do you feel like that's one of the advantages? I mean, of being a smaller company. It's only an advantage in that I choose personally to do more than just publish the books. I understand that if you have the resources, you may not choose to do that, and that's totally fine. There's no judgment, but um, I have the luxury of having been able to do that from day one and do all kinds of projects that were not books that didn't make a return for myself, that only you know, may have benefited the artist and in those years didn't benefit KP. I think that, no, I have the same overhead, you know, proportionally than, you know, I have to take care of the same costs that you would have to, but only on a smaller scale. So, you know, I can't be screwing around the way I could five years ago and be taking certain kinds of risks anymore. So, no, you know, do I like that? No, I, I don't love that, but, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to ever do anything that would cause uh, any of the books to have less sales and therefore the, you know, payment out to the artists. I don't want them to suffer because I'm being a cowboy or cowgirl. But I, I do think that that desire to change things and do things and having like the indecisiveness and unreasonableness, like it's part of all of our natures. Like no one is going into being a publisher and saying, you know, 24 hours of the day, I am going to be like a, a logical, reasonable Vulcan all of the time in in all of my thoughts even, right? I think that the thing that matters is doing your best for your your company and your books. And, you know, everyone at some time is like, this author is accidentally a dick, or I wish I could do the following crazy projects that in no way I can do or any of these things. I think what matters is that struggle and challenging yourself to think through those moments that you have of questioning what you're doing. Sure. And I mean, we should all have fun at our jobs. We all work hard at them and there's not tons of return. All the more reason to uh, you know, well, we have to take it as dead seriously as we have to, to be professional. You know, there's room for fun. And, you know, if you open yourself up to that kind of thing, I think you are going to be more naturally amenable to taking a risk on somebody, which that's just the beginning of opening up, you know, a certain world to another artist who may not get that break. So I'm fully supportive of that. Can you talk a little about the landscape of comics publishing and what you think about it. You know, there's lots of people publishing comics right now. Everyone from Marvel, DC, Boom, Image, Oni, Drawn and Quarterly, Fanagraphics, Lion Forge, book publisher imprints like Scholastic Graphics or First Second or Pantheon. How, what do you see when you look at all of that? You mean, where do I fit in or what about the world? You know, how is it going? I think both. both, yeah. Um, I think that our place in the world is, I really truly believe that we, even with our small staff, that we really do punch above our weight. We have um, we can't afford to hire a fancy publicist, much as I'd love to have somebody, uh, you know, properly promote any of our books. And so when you're doing everything yourself, you're primarily, you, you are buying ads and that kind of thing. You are going to shows, you're paying the distributor to take 
uh, your books to shows that you're not at, getting them to library shows, that kind of thing. But you're using social media really, really a lot. So basically, you know, it's your time that you're using. I think that for the smaller pressers like myself, we do the same amount of books as some companies that are larger who have way larger staff. So, you know, when I think about that, and it's been brought to my attention because I didn't figure that out on my own, you know, we work hard, aside from, you know, going up the next rung and having the money to, you know, bring in a dedicated publicist. Uh, you know, I hire an outside copy editor, but we still all copy edit. We go through many runs in-house. That definitely still keeps you in the you know, probably the lowest third in terms of size. But I think that my point is you can be small like we are. You can do only 12 or 13 books, but you can have a way higher profile than um, a lot of other companies who are the same size, who are also working hard and may have the same resources. So I think that it's not fair across the board. It's not, I don't think you can compare every company that has the same amount of staff if you pulled up every company that did 13 books a year and, and we'd all be very different, uh, we'd all be doing different things. We'd probably be doing things different ways. I love that there is so much work out there. I think that's fantastic. Uh, there's so much work out there. A lot of it, a lot of it is very, very good. Not everyone can be published, but you know, there are so many different models to publishing now. I guess even though I've only been in the game 10 years, I myself would never choose to do a Kickstarter. Uh, however, you know, as you know, some people are incredibly successful at doing it, from the big companies to uh, a small company. So that's a model that didn't exist when I started. I think that companies like 2D Cloud, who are small, you know, comparable in size in terms of what they put out, but they fund their books by pre-order via a crowdfunding campaign every season. Uh, the stress of thinking about them doing that and, you know, possibly not making their goal one time. And also the kinds of books that they do, for instance, wonderful art comics that are probably never going to have a huge audience, but, you know, you know that going in, but absolutely deserve to be published and be out there. Um, you know, I have huge admiration for companies like that, that are honestly hanging on by their fingernails, uh, it's, uh, I like the range that you can have the huge companies putting out fancy things like a Chris Ware monograph, and then you can have uh, people doing scenes, self-publishing scenes, and doing little crowdfunders at the bottom or at the other end, not the bottom, but the other end of the scale, the bottom in terms of size. So that makes me excited. Uh, what makes me frustrated is I feel like we're not growing the market. And if we can't grow the market, uh, how big... You know, you can add more and more companies in, but we need people to buy these books in order for all of us to be sustainable. Yeah, I mean, in any conversation about comics these days, eventually the conversation goes to audience and distribution and, like, the market. Like, how to connect this really great book with a person who will love it but has never heard of it before. Correct. And also introducing for myself i've fought really hard to show people a different kind of book uh you know i've often had people come to a table and say this is a comic and you know 
Yeah, it is a comic. It's a, just a different kind of comic. You, you have to train people how to see differently. Uh, there are many ways of seeing, but most people are only taught a certain way. And, you know, anybody can learn to see differently. But I feel like on top of our day job, the onus is on us to be teachers, to be educators to those people that, you know, look, you can look at all these different things and, you know, they all still fall within this realm of kinds of books kinds of books that you should know about. You ought to know about that they exist. You don't have to like them. Maybe you will not like it, but you will take it home and think about it. Maybe your kid will like it. Maybe your partner will like it. And then, you know, then we've gained a follower there. Well, I think that is a great note to wrap up on. Um, Annie, do you have any kind of last sentiments that or thoughts or other things that you want to talk about about publishing that you want to tell us? Um, there's one thing that I would like to see in alternative comics, and I hope I do see it during my time, uh, and that is to see more women become publishers. Uh, I know there are people out there who could do it, who would do a good job. Uh, some of them need financial backing to do it. Some of them are out there breaking out, doing it, you know, project to project. But I think that you'll see after a few of those projects, a cohesive line that would uh you know, culminate in a really nice little publishing company. So I'm going to try hard to push people to make that happen. Obviously, the work has to be good. And, uh, you know, I'm not just saying anybody who is a woman do this. But I know there are people who are interested in doing this. um, And I would just like to see more of them actually having that job. I want people who want my job. I don't meet very many people who want my job. Uh, I'd like to see more people, especially young women who want this job. Well, thank you so much. That was fantastic. We so appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us this evening. If people want to learn more about you and Koyama Press and your books, uh, where should they find that on the internet? Uh, Koyamapress.com. I'm on Twitter. There's a Koyama Press Facebook page. You can find me on Facebook as a person also. Uh, We still have a good Tumblr as Koyama Press. Instagram, I do put some stuff up, but you know, generally, maybe not Instagram. (laughs) I put injury pictures there. So maybe not Uh, (laughs) the website, I think. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Graphic Novel TK. Next time, we'll be talking to literary agent Jen Lanon about the process of pitching a book to a publisher from the perspective of creators and their agents. Looking forward to it and see you then. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at Graphic Novel TK or email us at graphicnoveltk at gmail.com. We'll go behind the scenes with one of the people who makes publishing. Uh, wait a sec. Sorry. I'm like, <laughs> what is this word that I have written here? <laughs> if we're having a handwriting oh, problem. Okay. <laughs> Starting this over again. Gina likes to write these notes to herself when script. she gets to my house and then can't read her own handwriting. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is what I get for stealing poor quality pens from the Children's Book Council. <laughs>